Before we get going, here's a little tease. Around this time of year, some of you in the Northeast begin to see flowers popping up all around you in the woods and fields. But no one planted them. So Eliza wants to know... Why do flowers grow wild? Keep listening after the episode to learn more. But Why is supported by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings may vary. This is But Why, a podcast for curious kids from Vermont Public. I'm Jane Lindholm. On this show, we take questions from curious kids just like you, and we find answers. You love to send us questions about animals. I think that's the topic you send us the most questions about. Luckily, Melody and I love animals as much as you do. So today we're going to pick a few of the cool questions about animals you've sent us recently and give you some answers. What do bison... Moose, Gila monsters, parrots, and snails have in common? Well, nothing, actually. At least not that we know of, except that they're all being featured in this episode. Now, if you can think of some way these animals are all connected, send us a note. As you probably know if you've been listening for a while, we love hearing from you. So you can have an adult record you telling us what you think connects all these animals, or just tell your adult what you want them to write, and then send the file or the email to questions at butwhykids.org. Anyway, let's get started. We're going to check in on one of the iconic animals of the American West. My name is Leonor. I'm six years old. I live in... Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and my question is, why do bisons run so fast but walk so slow? When Melody and I went to Texas recently, we stopped by the Fort Worth Nature Center and Refuge, where they have a captive herd of bison. Captive is the word you would use for wild animals that are contained. They're not farm animals, but they can't roam free, and they're being cared for in some way by humans. The bison at the nature center weren't visible near the fence when we arrived, so we had to hop on a gator ATV to go find them. It was pretty rough going, and we thought we might not spot them at all in the many, many acres these bison have to roam. Yeah, so we have uh, six calves uh, with this herd here. We just had a, our latest calf was born, what, two, three weeks ago maybe? Uh, My name is Michael Perez. I'm the education manager here at the Nature Center. and. Uh, this is part of our routine today, or uh, every day, is you know taking care of the wildlife. So we have uh, we take care of wildlife by taking care of their habitats. Now the bison here are still we consider wild, so we do uh, take care of them as far as uh, taking care of their land by making sure there's plenty of vegetation. And this right here is a treat. So this is like fortified hay, has molasses in it, and it's just a way of uh, getting them so we can see them and enjoy them recreational as well. Eventually, the sounds of familiar humans, 
and the shaking of a special food bag lured a few of them over to where we had stopped. Yeah, so I'm Daniel Pross, Natural Resource Manager here at the Fort Worth Nature Center and Refuge. Um, today we have the uh, our bison. Uh, this is Maverick. He's actually our, our herd bull here on the property. So uh, it's Maverick and our herd bull and one of our cows. You heard Daniel refer to a bull and a cow there. Bison are related to the kinds of cattle you might see in a dairy herd or that are farmed for their meat. But there are some important differences, too. For one thing, bison are the only wild cattle species in North America, although most of them now are captive or somewhat domesticated. And in fact, some of them are farmed for their meat. Bison are much bigger than the cows you see on a normal farm. A bull like Maverick can be up to six feet tall and weigh as much as a ton. That's 2,000 pounds. And females, called cows, can weigh about half that much. You can also recognize bison by their hide, or fur, which is a chocolatey brown color when they're adults, and grows long and thick around their heads. They even grow a mane and beard. And they have a big hump on their neck that's actually taller than their heads, which are often down at ground level where they can chomp up the grass that they like to eat. The question we got from a kid was, how come bison or buffalo walk so slow and run so fast? You can say that about me. I walk, well, you can say that about me because I don't run fast, but uh, I think walking slow uh, is going to conserve your energy. So when you're living in the wild, you have to be cognizant of your predators and those who, who are out, out for you. Like, for example, for bison uh, in their historical range, you have to worry about wolves and, and grizzly bears and, and animals like that. So um, being able to conserve their energy is very, very important. and and the daily uh, life of a bison is just walking around and eating, so there's no need to be on, in a rush. So conserve their energy. And then when you need to run fast because you're going to get a treat or because something's chasing you, then you, you can run fast. Yes, so you've, you've conserved all that energy so you can run away from the predators. And they run up speeds of 30, 35 miles an hour, so they're very, very fast. They can jump vertical, and they can jump uh, clear four-foot, five-foot fences. They're, they're very agile. But uh, yes, so conserve their energy to escape predators, and they run at a pretty rapid rate. Which explains why the fences in the Fort Worth Refuge are much taller than four or five feet. I mentioned a minute ago that bison are an iconic American species. Lots of people think of herds of bison roaming the plains, and they used to. This refuge is in a part of Texas where bison used to roam wild. You know, they are a keystone species. Without, without them, you wouldn't have other species, you know, as the prairie dogs and, and some of these other the critters that we might have uh, in our native prairies. So a lot of the, the native wildlife depended on bison to, to thrive and survive. That's actually why these bison are in the refuge. They help recreate the natural ecosystem of the area. There are still wild living bison in the United States. Around 5,000 live in Yellowstone National Park, and there are other wild herds in a few other places in the U.S. and Canada as well, but not at all like there used to be. Bison have lived in North America since prehistoric times. So bison were very numerous, and they were an important animal for a lot of Native American groups. So uh, as, as we move, moved westward, there was a push to get rid of the bison as a result to limit the amount of Native Americans in the western part of the country. As Michael is kind of getting into, the history of bison in North America is tied up in a lot of complicated history. When European colonizers began pushing into what is now the American Plains, part of their strategy was to claim the land for themselves. 
But that land was already occupied by the indigenous people who lived there, and bison were an important part of the lifestyle for some of those people, including the Lakota people, whose name for themselves means bison or buffalo nation. So getting rid of the bison was one strategy for limiting the power of the people who were already here. It's a pretty challenging part of U.S. history and of our present, so it's worth talking about and having your adults help you learn more. Maybe in your school, if you live in the U.S. or Canada, there's more information about this part of our North American history than there was when I was a kid. And if you'd like us to do some episodes on this topic, please send us your questions. We're going to leave the bison issue there for now, except that I have one more interesting thing to tell you. You may have heard me earlier call them buffalo, and a lot of people do. Here in the U.S., we kind of use those two names interchangeably, buffalo and bison. But they're not really buffalo. The buffalo is a kind of animal that lives in Asia and Africa. The U.S. National Park Service says French fur trappers started calling these animals boeuf back in the 1600s because they kind of resembled the animals these fur trappers had seen and were calling boeuf in Africa and Asia. And boeuf became buffalo. But you can definitely call these big bovines bison, because their scientific name is bison, bison, bison. They're from the genus bison, the species bison, and the subspecies bison. So they are definitely bison, bison, bison. Here's a question about another big animal. I'm Jack. I'm four. I'm from California. I want to know what the thing is hanging from the neck of a moose. Picture a moose, the biggest animal in the deer family. Moose have long, skinny legs. They're a dark brown color, kind of like a bison, but instead of two sharp horns like a bison has, male moose, which are also called bulls, have huge, chunky antlers. They almost look like hands on the moose's head. The heaviest moose antlers can weigh 75 pounds. That's as much as your average fourth grader. But Jack's not asking about antlers. Jack has noticed the big, long thing hanging down from a moose's neck. It's a flap of skin covered in fur. Well, Jack, that's what's known as the dewlap, or the bell, of the moose. Both male and female moose have them. Most dewlaps are 8 to 10 inches long, but they can be much bigger. And believe it or not, as much as we know about moose, we actually don't know what the dewlap is for. There are some theories. The first is that they may use it to convey their smell to other moose. Another is that they use it for heat regulation in summer to help them cool down. But still, there's a lot more research to be done. We're talking about animals today, and coming up, we're going to leave mammals behind and talk about some other really cool animals, Gila monsters, parrots, and snails. But first, a message for the adults who are listening. Support for our program comes from Oak Meadow, providing secular, student-centered homeschooling curriculum and a teacher-supported distance learning school for K-12. Oak Meadow has encouraged kids to follow their curiosity and uncover the answers to But Why for 45 years. To learn more, visit oakmeadow.com. This is But Why, a podcast for curious kids. I'm Jane Lindholm, and we are working our way through some quick animal questions today. Hi, my name is Roman. I'm from Tucson, Arizona, and I'm four years old. Why do Gila monsters bite? My name is Kim Gray, and I'm the curator of herpetology and ichthyology at the San Diego Zoo Wildlife Alliance. 
Why do Gila monsters bite? That's a great question. Um, in fact, Gila monsters have a really amazing bite. So not only are they a member of the reptile family, they're a lizard, and they have teeth that they can bite just like pretty much every other lizard. Their bite is extra special because they have venom. So they really are the only true venomous lizard, Gila monsters and their cousin beaded lizards. Their bite is so strong, they bite and hold on and they don't let go. And what they're doing is they're chewing you at the same time. So they're gonna bite their prey, they're gonna bite the animal that they're trying to eat. And as they bite, they chew. And that chewing causes the venom that's in their mouth, like spit and saliva, it gets into the prey animal and envenomates them that way. I know it's very complicated thought on how all that works. But basically, if you think about it, they have a lot of saliva in their mouth and that saliva is toxic. And so that chewing, that biting and not letting go gets it going into the animals that it's bitten. So um, that's how it gets going. And then it starts to um, take effect. And then the animal, the Gila monster can eat its prey. That's so cool. So now we've tackled a reptile question. Let's move on to birds, specifically parrots. Hello, my name is Nas, and I live in La Plata, and my question is, how do parrots talk? For our answer, we're going to turn to Laura Kim Joyner. She's a veterinarian and avian, that means bird, conservationist who has worked in Central America. And she's the co-president of an organization called One Earth Conservation. How do parrots talk? Well, let's talk about the physical biology of that. They have something called a syrinx, which is like our vocal box, but it's at the end of their trachea, deep into their chest, not like our larynx, which is up in our neck. So they can use all that air power to, and all their body muscles to make sounds. And they use both sides of their syrinx, which is very, very musculature. They also use their tongue. They use their esophagus. And that's physically how they talk but they also talk using their brains. They are what's called auditory learners, as are many other kinds of birds. That means they learn after they hatch. They're like humans. We learn two language after we talk. But parrots have another center in their brain called a nuclei that makes them have two auditory centers, and which makes them able to make sounds, that is to talk in very complex forms. And they say a lot. <laughs> Parrots have basically their own language. We can't hear their words, but they can, and they can say different things with the kinds of sounds they are making. They also have dialects. I was just in Nicaragua last week, and the Yellowknife Amazon there sounds very different than the Yellowknife Amazon on one part of the island than on the others and compared throughout its range. Some parrots have been shown that they give particular call sounds. In other words, they name their children. Their mother and dad also have names. Parrots talk with syntaxes. What does that mean? Well, that means they put sounds in a particular order to make a new meaning. And those that have learned human language do the same thing. They move the words around to make a new meaning that's all their own. So how do they talk? Well, they don't just have their own language. They learn so much after they're born. They can 
mimic, and it's not just mimicking human language, they mimic their own language they learn. So they know their families and communities' names and dialects, and it's so that they can tell who's part of their flock and who's from outside of their flock. They also use their various sounds or words and language to convey information about where to eat, what is there to eat, and how we can be a stronger flock together. So in closing, why and how does a parrot talk? Well, to really know how a parrot talks and what they are saying, we ask what they mean to say. What are they saying to each other? What do they need and what do they feel? They are just mimicking. They are communicating and connecting. What does the parrot say to you? Many hear that the parrots say they are in danger due to the pet trade. Others hear, oh, their incredible beauty, and hear the science behind the bird's culture, behavior, and ecology. And they hear that the birds are saying they should fly free. From an animal that can zip through the sky to one that lives its whole life on the ground. Unless it's picked up and carried by a big hungry bird. Yikes. This time, we have a gastropod question. My name is Shimnon, and I am five years old. I live in Jos, Nigeria. My question is, why do snails have slime? What a sticky question, Shimnon. Snail slime is basically just mucus. Humans make mucus, too. We might think of it as snot or phlegm. Mucus is basically made from water and proteins. Snails make two different kinds of mucus. The first kind keeps them moist so they don't dry out, and they make this mucus all over the soft parts of their bodies. The second kind of mucus is probably the one that Shimnam is asking about. It's the mucus that leaves a slimy trail along your garden plant or sidewalk or a sandy beach. This kind of mucus comes out of the snail's foot. That's the bottom part of a snail's body, the part that comes out of the shell and helps them move. That foot produces slime that kind of pushes the snail along like a wave. And when the snail wants to stop, that slime becomes sticky, and it allows the snail to basically glue itself to the surface. Snails can even hang upside down from a ceiling or tree branch with the help of that sticky substance. How cool is that? The mucus serves another purpose as well. It's actually a chemical trail that allows other snails to find them. Snails can also make a lot of bad-tasting mucus when they need to protect themselves from predators. So why do snails have slime? Because it's so useful to them. And humans think that slime might be useful to us, too. Scientists have studied snail slime to make medical glues, and it's even being used in some face creams. Now that's something I didn't know before. Thanks, Shimnam. That's it for this episode. If you have a question about anything, have an adult record it. It's easy to do on a smartphone using a voice recording app. Be sure to include your first name, where you live, and how old you are. Then have your adult email the file to questions at butwhykids.org. We can't answer every question, but we listen to them all, and we love to hear what's on your mind. But Why is produced by Melody Baudet and me, Jane Lindholm, at Vermont Public. We're distributed by PRX. Our theme music is by Luke Reynolds. We'll be back in two weeks with an all-new episode. Until then, stay curious.
Remember our question from before the podcast started about how wildflowers grow? This time of year, some flowers bloom in the woods and only live for a short, short time. For our series Northeast Nature, I went for a walk in the woods with naturalist Jack Markoski to learn more about spring flowers. What I love the most about spring ephemerals is that they have such this narrow window of time that they are photosynthesizing and, and appearing to our eyes, right? And so they're coming up from the ground after the ground thaws, so really short period, all the way to when the leaves come out in the canopy. And that can change in the year and really make it a magical time to find ephemerals. Ephemerals are a type of flower that's short-lived. That's what ephemeral means. Maybe you can find some on a walk in the woods where you live. If you want to get But Why for your classroom or home study, sign up for But Why Adventures Northeast Nature. In this monthly series, we learn more about what's happening outside, and we have curriculum and activity guides for all students. It's free, and you can find out more at butwhykids.org nature.